exactly a true story. It's more like a parable. But then again, it kind of is a true story. It has to do with once upon a time, there was a group of, of college students that all went to school and lived on campus at the same local college. We'll just call it USC. Okay? And, um, and these, these students were friends, and they all went to school together. And like a lot of college students, they were looking forward to spring break. And they had made plans. They were headed to Mexico for spring break. They were just going to party till they couldn't stand up anymore. They were going to do that for a week, and they were going to come back. Because, you know, to pass classes at USC, you don't have to be that bright anyway. So they were going to go down to Mexico for the week and come back. And guys, they went all out. They got to Mexico. It was party from the word go. And they were out in the clubs, and they were out in the beaches, and they were out in the street, and they were drinking every night. They would have one person in their group who was a designated driver, but everybody else was just getting wasted. They were taken aback. They were meeting locals and doing all the things that you associate with spring break in Mexico. And uh, what they didn't know is that while they were there flashing their money, they were being watched. And they weren't just being watched, they were being stalked. In fact, they were being hunted. And on the third night, as they drove away, most of them passed out, one driver sober enough to drive. They came to an intersection, two trucks came from each direction, and they were ambushed. And they were pulled from the van and thrown in the back of the truck. They were blindfolded and tied and they were taken off. And they were just taken out into the desert. They drove for a long time. They didn't know how long or what direction or exactly how far they had gone, but they finally came to a compound. And when they got to this compound, they were brought in and they were tied at their ankles and tied at their wrists and they were blindfolded and they were thrown into a cage. And they lived in that cage. They gave up their information so that they could write uh, ransom letters to the parents and the parents received ransom letters and they waited for the money to come in. And when the money didn't come in right away, they began to up their game, and they decided that if they tortured these guys and videoed it and sent videos to their parents, that maybe their parents would step up and pay. And that's what they did. And this went on for days. What the kidnappers did not know is that one of the girls had a father who possessed a very particular set of skills. Skills he had acquired over a long career. Skills that made him a nightmare to people like them. And sure enough, in the middle of the night, stealthily, he drove into the compound in a van, left the van off behind some bushes, and he snuck in. And the guard who was inside guarding the cell didn't hear anything until he heard the outside guard drop and hit the ground. He got up, he hit the alarm, he went to see what happened, and then he hit the ground. And the father came in, he took a pair of bolt cutters, he cut open the cage, and he cut off the ties that held their wrists and held their feet, and he took off their blindfolds, and he got them all focused, and he said, now listen to me. You have to do exactly what I say. You are going to follow me. We're going to go now. We're going to get to a van. When we get to the van, you're going to get in that van. There are blankets. You're going to lay face down in the van, cover yourself with those blankets, and you will not move. No matter what happens, you will not move, and you will not make a sound. Does everybody understand? Yes, and off they went. 
And he got them into the van covered with the blankets and they took off into the night and somehow made it across the border and they got back alive. So it's a story that has a happy ending. It's actually a very happy ending because all 12 of those USC students were not only saved, but when they got home they were much wiser as a result of what they had been through and they all disenrolled at SC and enrolled at UCLA. And now, a question. The father who rescued them. Man, you talk about rude. You talk about gruff. You talk about unfriendly. He comes in in the middle of the night and starts barking orders at them. He tells them, you will do this, you will do this, you will do this, you will not do this, and you will do this. Does everybody understand? Now go. How does he say he's a loving father when he gives all those commands? Well, it's pretty easy, right? Because all of those commands were for their own good. Every command he was giving was for their benefit. He was trying to rescue them from captivity. He was trying to bring them into freedom. He was trying to take them out of a situation in which they would surely die and put them in a situation in which they would surely live. And for that to happen, there had to be a process of order giving and obedience. And nobody would ever look down on that father for the way he did that because it was a loving thing to do. Guys, we have a God who loves us so very much. And he loves us so much that he is not about to stand back and watch us be held in captivity. And so he did whatever it took to rescue us, to bring us into freedom. And what it took was bloody. And what it took was gruesome. And what it took involved some commands and some obedience. And yet what it, what it took set us free from captivity. We've been uh, doing this uh, series this summer called the Summer of Love, and it's a study in the book of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. It's all the way in the back. Don't go to the Gospel of John. Go to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 5, and let me just read to you verses 1 through 4. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. If you've been here this summer and you've been working with us through the book of 1 John, you have heard this before. There are certain marks that accompany genuine salvation. There are certain signs in a person's life that he has an actual saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And John, in this, in this book of 1 John, boils it down to three major signs. And he says these signs are basically belief, obedience, and love. And he reiterates it and he comes back at it from every angle that he can. You remember last week we talked about God's resume? I, I, I put a slide up, I, I brought it up again. Um, this is not a full resume for God. These are just some of the attributes of things that are true about God. And, and I put it up last week because I wanted us to remember that sometimes this God who requires us to love others 
and we get afraid to love others because those others are not so trustworthy, we need to remember how trustworthy God is. We need to remember who our God is. And sometimes when we look at circumstances and we interpret those circumstances, it makes us wonder if God could really be good, if God could really be loving, if God could really be wise, if God could really be powerful. I mean, after all, if he's all those things, why is all of this going on? But I'm always encouraging us to turn that around and judge our circumstances in the light of who God is. Because the truth is the truth, no matter how much my circumstances change. Amen? And so we need to remember who God is, and we need to remember that He is trustworthy and He is good. And when we look at Him giving us commands, does God give us commands? Yep, He sure does. He sure does. I mean, if you've read any part of the Bible, you know that God is telling us over and over and over again, there are some things we should be doing, and there are some things we should not be doing. There are things he commands us to do. And in the book of 1 John, he commands us over and over and over again to love. He commands us to, to love God and love people. In fact, when, remember when they came to Jesus and they said, you know, we've been studying the law. We've read the whole Old Testament. We've listened to what the rabbis say and we've read the Pharisees writing. And, and there's so many rules to follow. Which ones are the most important ones? And Jesus basically said, it all boils down to two things. Love God and love people. Those are his commands. There's no other command that God gives that doesn't fit under one of those two categories. Love God and love people. But some of us resist a life like that because it seems, it seems too uh, confining. It, it feels like, well, if I have to stay within these certain boundaries that God has set up for me, then I'm not going to be able to experience life to the fullest. And so we feel confined when God commands us to do things. Guys, just the opposite is the case. Jesus did not come to make irreligious people into religious people. I, I just feel like we need to make t-shirts or bumper stickers or something that says that. He did not come to take irreligious people and turn them into religious people. He came to make the captives free. That's what he came for. In fact, I want you to just leave your finger in 1 John. We're going to go back there, but I want you to go to the book of Luke. We're going to bounce around just a little bit this morning, and I'm going to speak as fast as I can so that, you know, you don't end up last in line at Applebee's or something. But, but we're going to go to Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, basically, um, we have this, this moment that takes place right after Jesus gets baptized and then he's immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted and he fasts for 40 days and he goes through the spiritual battle which he is victorious, right? And then he comes back and in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we pick it up. This is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read. Uh, and the prophet, he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he gave, he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the very launching of his ministry, day one. He's finally coming out public and he's about to start the three years of ministry that will lead up to the cross. And how does he introduce himself? What does he say to people to let them know what makes him different from the other religious leaders who are asking for their attention? He introduces himself by picking up the scroll of Isaiah and reading the prophecy of Isaiah, which was about him. And what does that prophecy say? It says he came to bring sight to the blind. He came to set captives free. So for us to think of God as one who comes to put a burden upon us that we're supposed to carry is to totally misunderstand the purpose for which Jesus came. And this is the beginning of his public ministry. This is how he introduces himself. Not as a Pharisee, not as a judge, not as a rule maker, not as a jailer of the guilty, but he introduces himself as a savior who has come to those who are in captivity in order to set them free. That's why he came. And in what sense are people captives? Well, certainly, people are captives to sin. I mean, the scripture says this over and over again. In Romans chapter 1, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1 if you're in Luke. It's about three books to the right. After Acts, you get to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1, and I wish I had time to explain and read through the entire chapter, but we don't. But let me just tell you that in Romans 1, Paul is beginning to lay out his argument in which he talks about the condition of mankind without God. And he basically says that apart from God, our lives just spiral down and down and down. He says that there are people who insist upon being their own God and refuse to worship the one true God. And refusing to worship him, they choose to do things their own way, thinking that doing things their own way will somehow make their life better. But of course, it doesn't make their life better, does it? It, it brings them further and further from God, which is the purpose of life. And he explains all of that. Um, through, the, through the first three quarters of Romans chapter 1. I want us to pick it up at the end in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 28. Just as they did not see, see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is quite a list, isn't it? I mean, every kind of sin you can imagine is on there. Stuff that you would say, well, that's not a big deal. Just a little bit of gossip. All the way down to murder and, and inventors of evil. Inventors of evil. People who don't think there's enough evil, they've got to come up with a new kind of evil, right? And he puts all these people on the list, and he says, this is the result of when you are captivated by sin. This is what happens. 
Your life spirals out of control, and you think if you do things your own way, you'll be happy, you'll be joyful, you'll be at peace, you'll finally have things the way you want. But you find out, don't you, that when you go down those roads, it's like a mouthful of gravel, and it just leaves you thirsting for some sort of thirst quencher that will help you, and it doesn't come. Captive to sin. That, that approach to life... Uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I will be my own God. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. What's right for me is right for me, and I'm going to go out and do my own thing, and you better not get in my way. People who deny God, people who insist upon being their own God, that approach always, 100% of the time, leads to brokenness and ruin and despair. Always. And God knows that. So he gives us standards to live by, that will lead us to joy and peace and hope instead of despair and brokenness and ruin. Too many people resist God because they think he wants to put handcuffs on them when just the opposite is true. We're in handcuffs and Jesus comes to set us free. And, and it's not just freedom from this sort of hedonism, this lifestyle of be, uh, you know, betraying God and rebelling against him. But there's a whole other side to that coin that we see a lot of too. And that is, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I am going to work my way into God's good favor. So he doesn't just come to set us free from sin. He comes to set us free from um, captive, being captive to law and religion. Because man-made religion never got anybody any closer to God, did it? Oh my goodness, we have example after example. But you know... All throughout history, man has been incurably religious. And so when he doesn't know the one true God, he creates a religion because somehow there is this thing in man that says, I got to get to God. Somehow I got to please God. Somehow I have to honor God. And so I will create a religious system, whatever that is, and I will follow those rules and then God will like me. And you become a slave to that religious system. And what the scripture tells us is it wouldn't matter how well you kept to any religious system you're never going to be holy, and that's the standard. That's why he sent Jesus. So there are people who think if they work hard enough, somehow they can earn salvation. But the scripture is very clear. Salvation only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anytime you add anything to that, you're talking about a man-made religious system that isn't about God. God doesn't need us to add anything to the finished work of the cross. So the person who ignores God and the person who tries to work his way into God's favor are equally lost, which is pretty disparaging. And you say, well, then who can be saved? The one who believes God. That belief leads to obedience, and that happens in the context of love. So for the skeptic, the question comes down to whether or not Jesus is believable whether or not he's worthy to be believed and that's where John takes us next go back to 1st John 5 are you guys with me 1st John 5 we're gonna go in verse 5 who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God this is the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ not with the water only but with the water and with the blood it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, 
that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, this is a strange passage. He's talking about blood and water and the spirit and testimony and all that kind of stuff, and it's a little confusing. In fact, you could read a bunch of um, Bible scholars, and you would find that there are numerous opinions about what this really means. But most agree that it basically comes down to a fairly simple interpretation. He's talking about testimony, believable testimony. And in their day, basically, if, a, if someone was accused of a crime, they could not be charged unless there was two or three reliable witnesses who could testify to what they had seen. If it was hearsay, you didn't get charged. If one person said you did it, you didn't get charged because that person may have a vendetta against you. You have to have two or three witnesses that have to be brought. It comes from Scripture. It's an Old Testament um, truth. So two or three witnesses have to be brought. And so what John is doing is making an argument for, for the believability of Jesus' claims. And he is saying that Jesus doesn't just claim to be God, but there's multiple testimonies that, um, that affirm that claim. And it begins with his baptism, the water. Water is one of those testimonies. Now, you know that um, you, you can find this in, in Luke chapter uh, 3. Um, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, we won't look it up for the sake of time, but it's a well-known story. Jesus goes in to be baptized. And, and by the way, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John preached repentance. That means turning away from your sin. When you wanted to repent, you came forward and he baptized you. And it was a symbol of the cleaning and the new life that you were going to have no longer walking in that sin. Jesus did not need to repent, right? He had never sinned. So his baptism was not a baptism of repentance. So why be baptized at all? It was because it was a symbolic gesture that confirmed that he was who he said he was. And if you look it up in Luke chapter 3, you see that he goes down into the water. And when he comes back up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him visibly. And the, and, the, and the writers of the gospel say, like a dove. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if he was in the shape of a dove or if he came down like a dove. But people saw him. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, the voice of God the Father came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And everyone heard it and everyone saw it. And if they were there, it wasn't just hearsay. It was the testimony of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Spirit in the water, there you have it. Okay? What about the blood? Well, fast forward three years. Because Jesus didn't come just to teach and just to heal and all that. What did he come to do? He came to die. And when he died, he died on a bloody cross. And the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, the holy lamb of God, went to the cross and gave up his life for us in a bloody, murderous, torturous death. And the blood testified. What happened when Jesus finally said, it is finished, dropped his head and his heart beat for the last time for those three days. What happened? 
the earth shook. The sky became dark. The veil in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. That which used to separate God from people no longer existed. The separation had been removed because Jesus had become the propitiation for our sin. All of this testimony takes place even to the point where the centurion that is there, the one who murdered Jesus, stops, drops on his knees and says, indeed, this is the Son of God. And there's testimony at the water. There's testimony by the Spirit. There's testimony through the blood. And in dying on that cross, he fulfills countless prophecies about the Messiah. So it begins with the baptism of Jesus. And it moves on all the way to the cross. The ministry of Jesus, bookended, if you will, on the one hand by the water and on the other hand by the blood, giving testimony to who he is, the water and the blood affirmed by the Spirit. Jesus loves us enough to come down from heaven, die on the cross, and buy our pardon. It's not a myth. It's not a nice idea to tell children. It's a fact of history, attested to by countless eyewitnesses and by God himself. So what do we, what do we need? What more do we need? To believe. And when we believe, we will love. When we believe, we will obey. When Jesus becomes Lord, we become his followers. And there you have it, the big three. Believe, obey, and love. He just keeps coming back to it and back to it and back to it. You know why? Because those three things in Christ represent freedom. He came to set captives free. It's not about rules. It's not about religion. It's not about perfect attendance in Sunday school. It's not about burdens for us to carry. It's about Him carrying our burdens. It's about the love of God being poured out in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that truth, we can have more than just a summer of love. We can have more than just a lifetime of love. We can live in eternity of love because of Jesus. And if you're not experiencing that, then you're not experiencing Jesus. And I, and I just want to be, you know, blunt and direct to the point that I cannot be misunderstood. I will take the chance that I offend you. But you need to know that if you don't see evidence of a changing heart in your life, you have reason to question whether or not you actually know Jesus. Because with Jesus comes love. With Jesus comes obedience, transformation. I become a different person. Does it happen all at once? No. None of us is perfect. None of us is exactly like Jesus. But it does happen. It should be happening. And if we don't see evidence of Jesus active in our lives, we need to ask ourselves why not. And the answer may be that I've never actually submitted my life to Jesus. Whatever my story has been, however many times I went forward at a crusade or prayed at a Sunday school or a VBS or whatever my deal was, maybe I never actually submitted my life to Jesus and let him be Lord. Because guys, when Jesus is Lord, he changes everything. And many of us can attest to that in our own lives. There's no need to look anywhere but Jesus if you're looking for freedom. 
because he came to set captives free. And when you trust him, he transforms you. He said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And so we have to ask ourselves, would I describe my life as abundant? Am I experiencing that abundant life that Jesus came to give? Or do I feel more bondage than I do freedom? Jesus holds out his nail-pierced hands and he says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. He says, come to me all who are guilty and I give you forgiveness. He says, come to me, all who are blind and I will give you sight. Come to me, all who are lost and I will give you life. That's our Jesus. It's not a burden. It's not a burden. He doesn't come with a a chain to put on us. He comes to take our chains off. And when you live in that kind of freedom, you really know what it is to have joy. He offers that joy to all of us. What are you going to do with that offer? That's between you and God. Let's stand together and we'll pray.